we're in the middle of a series that we started a few weeks ago, and it's a series um, that will take us right up to Easter Sunday. And in this series, we're looking at the person of Jesus through the eyes of people who encountered him in different ways throughout their lifetime. And so to this point, we've looked at Jesus through the eyes of Mary, his mother, who knew him literally his entire life. We've looked at him uh, through the eyes of Peter. Peter was somebody who knew Jesus for a period of about three and a half years during Jesus's public ministry. And so these people knew Jesus well. Their initial um, understanding of him probably evolved over time. The person the person we're going to look at today had probably about a 15-minute window, uh, 15 minutes of maybe not fame, maybe this would actually be infamy based on the subject that this person was at the center of. And so today we're going to take a look at this woman who we know today as the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. Uh, when I was a young boy, my parents were pastors in western Nebraska, a town out in, um, is called Alliance, Nebraska, and we were, we, we were on the edge of town. We had cornfields around us, as you picture when you think of Nebraska, and, um, and, and my dad was the pastor of this, this church on, in Alliance, and uh, I got this picture on the screen there from the Facebook page. This is the church where I grew up. This is the church where a lot of who I am today and really the stuff that I know about God was shaped and formed in those walls right there. And I have so much love. I like this church on Facebook. I comment on their stuff quite a bit. Um, I'm friends with the pastor, even though I've never met the guy. I, I just, I, I have such a heart for that house. And so um, when, when I was growing up there, my parents had the house behind the, um, it was called the parsonage. And so we lived right behind the church. And so the entire church property became my playground. And so my sister and I would ride bikes there. Uh, me and my friends would play in the field on the side, play wiffle ball, kickball, football, whatever. And one of the things we liked to do more than anything was we used to take those spongy, foamy Nerf footballs. Remember those? And we would take those. And you, you know the game 500 where you throw the ball and there's a group of kids on the other side and they catch it and they get so many points, whatever was called out. Well, we would play that. But we would play it off the roof of this church. And as you can see there, there's a, a nice angled roof, maybe not a 45-degree angle, but it, it was a fun game for us to play because as the ball was coming down this roof, it would take these weird bounces and weird spins, and we'd have to, we'd think we were in perfect position, and the next thing you know, it bounces in its way over there. And so it was just this fun game where we couldn't, even the best guy wasn't that much at an, of an advantage compared to the rest of us. So, um, so we would play this game. And this one particular time we, we, we were playing, and every once in a while when the ball would be thrown up on the roof, it would kind of roll down sideways, and it would go very slowly, and then it would get stuck in the gutter. And when this would happen, we had to figure out a way to dislodge it. Usually there was a broom handle or something close by, or somebody else had another ball that we could throw up there and kind of just knock it free. But this one particular time, we didn't have any of those things. And so we were in this situation where we were going to have to probably quit playing the game. But we were having too much fun. My friends were getting ready to walk away. I was like, no way. Let's, this is great. So uh, I, I stepped back. And as you can see in the picture there, we had a gravel parking lot. It looks like it's still gravel today. I, w I picked up a rock, you know, a good-sized throwing rock. And I thought, I'm going to dislodge it. I have pretty good aim. I have a pretty good arm. I can hit it just right and knock that thing free. So I stepped back. I took aim. And you know, I wish I'd thought about the fact that there was literally an office window directly below the spot where the ball, I, I wish I had had this foresight that I have today, you know, one of those, I wish I knew what I know now kind of things. Um, but I didn't. And I picked up this ball and I was so confident I was going to hit it on my first try. I just hauled off and I threw it and didn't miss by much, but I missed by about 
this much. And as you can see, the, the window that's highlighted there in, on the screen, that's the exact window I broke. That was my dad's office, and he was inside at the time. And it freaked him out. And so... My dad comes running out, what in the world is going on? I thought it was a drive-by, but this was western Nebraska, so that didn't really make any sense. And so I was like, settle down, settle down. I, I, I threw a rock through the window. Why'd you throw a rock through the window, you silly boy? And so I, <laughs> I, uh, I, I figured out, okay, I said, dad, I explained it to him, and he said, listen, he said, that window, it's going to cost us probably $100, $120 to repair. And I said... Sorry, Dad, I ain't got no money. I'm eight years old. I don't know how you, you know, what you expect from me. He said, you're going to earn it. You're going to pay for it. And I said, Dad, seriously? Like, okay. And so he told me, he said, we've got this job. Uh, there was some construction job going on at the church at the time. And so my job was to come in and clean up the construction site and sweep up and make sure all the tools were put away properly and cleaned off and all that. And so I spent about an hour doing this. And I went to my dad at the end and I said, oh, so did that satisfy the debt, Dad? You know, I'd been working for an hour. And he said, nope, you earned about $5. And so I'm thinking, oh, no, I'm doing the math in my head, and I can't figure it out. But I'm, like, thinking, I got to do this, like, a million more times. That's not fair. And he said, listen, he said, somebody's got to pay for that window, whether it's myself or the church or insurance or you or some benefactor, somebody has to pay to repair the window because the window's been broken. But he said this. He said, I'm going to go ahead and take care of it. I just want you to understand that I'm taking care of it for you. And I'm asking you never do this again. (laughs) And I never did it again. I never did it again because I learned my lesson. See, what my dad did for me that day was he showed me mercy when I didn't deserve it. He showed me, he, he didn't burden me with the burden that I deserved, he lifted it from me and took it upon himself and paid that price that I was going to be unable to pay. In, in, um, Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote a classic novel called uh, The Scarlet Letter. And the, the woman in The Scarlet Letter, her, her name is Hester Prynne. And we're introduced to her in the beginning of the book as this woman who is um, uh, working in a... Uh, 17th century Puritan society in Massachusetts, and her husband has gone away at sea, and he's working somewhere far away, and he's been gone for so long that he's actually presumed dead. But she, during this time, is pregnant. She's found to be pregnant. And the thing you've got to understand about the Puritan society is that it was a religious-centric society, meaning that everything centered around religion. So their laws were religious laws. Their leaders were religious leaders. Their social codes of conduct were religious codes of conduct. And so Hester Prynne is in a really difficult situation because when it becomes obvious that she is pregnant, she is confronted with her sin, and she is found to be guilty for, by obvious reasons, and they require that she sews a red letter A into her garments so that everywhere she goes, this red letter A warns people that an adulterer is walking into their presence so they could go to the other side of the street if they needed to. Because this was, a, this was one of those things where she was publicly humiliated, and for the rest of her life, she, her, her entire identity is reduced down to this red letter A, that she's an adulterer. And in John chapter 8, we're introduced to a woman who we don't know her name. We don't really know anything about her. All we know is what she did. All we know is this sin that she has committed, that she is being brought to account for. And and as Jesus encounters her, 
Her entire identity in the eyes of the crowd has been reduced down to this concept, this idea that she is no longer whatever her name was. She is now the adulteress. And she's been caught in the act and she's being called to account for it. And just like Hester Prynne, she's in a society where everything revolves around religion. Everything revolves around religious rules. And so this is a big, big deal, a big crime that has been committed. And so in, in John chapter 8, by this point in Jesus' life, what you need to understand is that most Bible scholars believe that he, he was a, uh, a public figure for about three to three and a half years. And his ministry, his public ministry was about that period of time. And most scholars also believe that the story that we're going to look at today happened toward the end of his public ministry. So it's within a few months of his execution, his crucifixion. And so Jesus is very well known by this point. He's very popular with some people and some people think he's controversial, but everyone knows him and everyone has an opinion because he's been around for a while and he's been stirring things up and he's been teaching in a way that people were drawn to because they'd never heard teaching like this before. And, and, and he's been doing these cool miracles that keep drawing people in. And so everywhere he goes, he attracts a crowd. And wherever Jesus attracts a crowd, you know, the, the crowds gather crowds. And so they get bigger and bigger. And so in John chapter 8, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he's walking into the center of town and in the center of town is the temple and he's approaching the temple on the outside when a crowd gathers around him and they're waiting to see what he's gonna do. So Jesus being loving starts teaching them about God and he's teaching them and within a few minutes his entire uh, teaching is interrupted by this group of religious leaders who, who are dragging this woman into the middle of the circle. Jesus is at the center. People are gathered all around and stomping through the circle come these religious leaders with a woman behind them and they are dragging her in. And here's what they say in verse four. They say, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says that she should be stoned. It says to stone her. What do you say? So, so, Jesus is put on the spot here. And everyone around, you can imagine that this is one of those tense moments where people are waiting to see what's gonna happen next. And Jesus is just on the spot and he's, he's he, he, you know, literally like right there, he's got to account, he's got to come up with an answer uh, for, for how this, this whole matter should proceed. Now, before I go too far into what I wanna talk about, let me just address something. It's a little bit of a sidebar. But it's, I think it's important. Some people in this room today, you may be new to the Bible, you may be new to Christianity, new to the church, and when you see something like what you've just seen, the law of Moses says to stone her. In other words, execution, the death penalty for this sin. I felt like I needed to just address that really quickly. First of all, I think you need to understand that these religious leaders were breaking the law by not dragging the man along as well. For some reason... They just dragged the woman. And, and, and so that's obviously a problem. But they drag her in, ignoring the, the guilt of the other party. And then secondly, what you need to understand is that sin in a, in, is something that creates a debt. Okay? It creates a debt. And what I mean by that is that when someone acts in a way that is contrary to what God, what, what you need to understand about God 
is that his rules, his laws, his, um, the things that he says are not to keep us from having fun, but to protect our hearts. And so whenever he gives a rule and then he ascribes a punishment with it, the punishment is supposed to be preventative and to the degree that you can see how serious this matter is to him. And in this case, the act of adultery was something that had a very severe um, uh, sort of punishment. And I think that speaks to just the, the nature of how God views the damage that this kind of thing can cause. And so Jesus is on the spot here, and these men are dragging this woman in, and they're saying, Jesus, she got caught. The law says this. What do you say? Now, you might be thinking that these religious leaders were some good, noble men, that they were just, they were trying to protect God's law, and they were trying to protect the honor of, of, of God's law and his rules, and so they're, they're just thinking about God in this moment, and so they're wanting to um, use this as a teaching moment for the rest of the people. But if you're thinking that, you would be wrong. Because these men really had no interest in protecting God's law. What they had interest in protecting was their own stature and their own authority in this religious society. Because what you have to know is that the most important people in a religious-centric society are the religious leaders. Because they say how to interpret the religious rules. And they are the ones that people come to for answers. And so these men had always been among the most important people in this culture. And all of a sudden... Jesus starts teaching these things that are contrary to them and, and, and kind of pulling away the authority away from them. And so these men rightly feel threatened by what he's doing. And so they hate Jesus, most of them. There are a few who are intrigued by him and are try, like secretly becoming followers. But a lot of these people are trying to, to squelch this movement and, and, and suppress his, his um, authority because they feel so threatened. And so they would often do these things, as John tells us in verse 6, that they were, uh, John says they were trying to trap him. So they would do this from time to time where they would present him with a thing and they would say, in their minds, they're thinking, okay. He only has two options. If he says this, he just, so if in this case, if Jesus says, let's go ahead and stone her, let's go ahead and execute her, because that's what the law says. If he says that, then what he's doing is he's condemning himself by association. Because Jesus, for this past three years, has been hanging out with people like this, people who have, uh, you know, he's been hanging out with 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 the religious people call, you know, sinners, uh, like bad people is kind of what they were saying. He's been hanging out with people of ill reputation. He's been hanging out with people, uh, you know, uh, because he's taught in many cases that they were closer to the kingdom of God than some of the religious leaders. And so if Jesus condemns this woman, he condemns her by association because he's affiliated with her and people like her. But if he goes the other direction and says, you know what, let's not execute her, then what he's doing is he's contradicting God's law, which will instantly discredit him in the eyes of all these people who know God's law. And it will relieve uh, these, these religious leaders of the pressure that they're feeling. And so in their minds, these are the only two options. A, he condemns himself, or B, he discredits himself. Either way, we're good. We're back to our old level of influence. 
And so Jesus, in verse 7, I love his, uh, his response is so cool. His response is this. Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. So here's this, this tense moment where um, the people are like waiting to see what he says. And what does he do? He stoops down and maybe draws a picture of a cat in the dust or something. I don't know what he's drawing. He he's stoops down and he's just doing something in the dust. And the reality is there are men and women smarter than me who have uh, tried to figure out maybe what Jesus was doing, drawing in the dust. But the point is that John doesn't include that. He doesn't tell us what he's doing. It just says he's drawing in the dust. And so what that tells me is that, you know, if God wanted us to know what it was, he would have made sure it was included in the scriptures, but it wasn't. So it's irrelevant. And I don't think Jesus is just stalling because he's trying to think of an answer. Or acting like he didn't hear them. Oh, wait, what'd you say? I didn't even see you guys. Well, welcome. You know, like that kind of thing. It wasn't like that. It was like, it was like he, he, he stoops down and he's doing something. And these men are growing impatient. And so they start demanding an answer. And they say, Jesus, you have to tell us. Is it A or is it B? Condemnation or is it uh, you're going to discredit yourself and break the, allow her to break the law? And Jesus stands up in the middle of this. He stands up and he says, all right, but let the one who, is with, who has never sinned throw the first stone. Let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stoops back down into the dust again and, and he starts drawing again, doodling, doing whatever. And the, the weight of his words just hung there for a few minutes. And I don't know how long it was. John doesn't indicate that. But let's say it was a, a few seconds. Let's say it was a few minutes. Whatever it was, in, within a, a certain amount of time after him saying that, John reports to us that when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle with this woman. And then Jesus, as if he's been unaware, stands back up and he looks around. He's like, ma'am, where are your accusers? Haven't any of them condemned you? And her response is just very simply, this is all we hear from her, no, Lord. And Jesus answered back to her, then neither do I. Now go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. Now, let me just address what's happening here, because I think in order to understand what's happening, you have to understand what's not happening, okay? I think it's very important that you understand what Jesus is not doing here. Jesus is not glossing over her sin and ignoring it as if it, it's not a big deal. He's not condoning what she has done. He's not saying, hey, listen, we're going to pretend like this never happened, okay? Uh, you guys, all of you, are you in with me? Nobody tell on her, okay? <laughs> you know, she's getting off the hook this time. It wasn't like one of these side deals, you know, that was a little shady or anything like that. It wasn't him saying, you know what? I didn't see nothing. You didn't see nothing. So just go about your way and we're going to pretend like this never happened. And it wasn't him saying, you know what? It's really not that big of a deal. Because Jesus had been going around saying that he was God. And throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, which these people were very well acquainted with, God describes himself as just. And being just, he would require payment for a sin. Because in the concept of justice, evil must be punished and good must be rewarded, okay? And so there's this whole thing that Jesus has at, in front of him. And so he's not overlooking her sin, 
And he's not ignoring it because sin creates a debt that requires payment. And somebody has to pay the debt. And so here's Jesus. He's he's offering her something. What's he offering her? Mercy. Do you know what mercy is? My definition of mercy is this. When we don't get the bad things that we deserve. When somebody withholds the bad stuff that we deserve, like when my dad withheld the $120 debt from me that I deserved, and then he paid it in place of me. That's him showing mercy. And so Jesus is showing mercy to this woman. And so he's saying, you know what? I don't condemn you either. But that raises this question. How can he do that? Legally, Think about this if you're, you know, think about this in terms of like your favorite law and order type show. Legally, how can he do this if her sin has created this debt that requires payment? The only way he can do that is for somebody else to take the payment on themselves. You see, what we all need to remember here is that in that circle, there were a bunch of spectators And then there were a bunch of religious leaders. And then there was Jesus. And then there was this woman. And Jesus' words were, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And all of those men knew that they were not without sin. And and they knew that if they held her to account, then they were going to have to account for their own. Right? And so Jesus is the only person in that group who has never sinned. He's the only person who could have rightly and legally picked up a stone and condemned her and and, and thrown the first stone and then everyone else would fall in line and they would join in with him. He was the only person who could legally do that, but he chose not to. How can he do this legally? You have to understand, again, this is a few months before he goes to the cross. And Jesus knew that in a few months, he was going to be bearing the burden that she had to pay, that that, that was her right to pay. He was going to go to the cross, and he was going to take upon himself the burden of her guilt, the burden of her sin, and he was going to pay the debt that she was incapable of paying on her own. And so this was just a few months before his execution. So Jesus shows her mercy. Legally, the debt is hers. But mercy says, I'll pay the price. When Jess and I were, uh, uh, many years ago, we went, um, before we had kids, we went to New York City for, uh, uh, shortly after we were married, for just a little trip. I think it was literally, it was 19 years ago, like to this week. I think it was the end of March, uh, spring break when we were in college or whatever. And... um, we went to New York City with some friends, and we were just going to see all the sights, do all the things that you do. And one of the things we decided we wanted to do while we were there is we were going to see a Broadway show. I'd never seen, I didn't have much of a theater understanding at all at that point, so we were going to see a Broadway show and just, just to say we've been on Broadway and seen a show. And so we went to this place where you could buy tickets, and I think the cheapest ones were for the, for the show Les Miserables. And... Um, and so we bought the, I was like literally the last four tickets, us two and our friends, we were like, our backs were against the far wall, <laughs> as far away from the stage, as high up as we could possibly be, probably spent $300 on them, I don't know. Um, but it, it was, we went to this show, and I didn't know anything about the story. I'd never heard of it, I'd never really seen it. I mean, it sounded vaguely familiar, but I didn't know the story. And so we get there, and the curtain opens up, and people start singing, and I'm thinking, okay, 
let's get to the talking. <laughs> and there was no talking. It went on for an hour and then two hours. And it was just song after song after song. And they all bled into each other. And I was like, is this still the first song? Like, I, I, honestly, I can't, I don't remember them stopping. Um, and I, I left that theater that day confused. I had no idea what the story was about. I had no interest in the story. I hated Les Miserables because all they did was sang in this operatic way that I did, and I couldn't understand the words. So I was completely lost. And there were all these people on stage and sometimes they were swinging swords and sometimes they were kissing. And I was like, what is going on here? This is crazy. And, uh, a few years after that, uh, I, was, I was introduced to the movie by, in, starring Liam Neeson as the, the, her, the hero of the story. And um, I watched that story, and it quickly became one of my favorites, one of my favorite stories. I actually do like the new musical one with uh, Hugh Jackman as well. Now, now that I know what's going on, I kind of like it. But uh, back then, I had no idea. Um, but as, as, as the book written by Victor Hugo opens up, we're introduced to the hero of the story. His name is Jean Valjean. He's a, a poor man who was raised in the 1800s in France during the time of the French Revolution. And he's so poor that at one point he steals bread so that he can feed his sister's little kid because they're about to starve. And so he, he steals bread and he gets caught. And when he does this, he, when, when he gets caught, they, they sentence him to 19 years of hard labor for stealing bread to feed a, a starving child. I don't know that the punishment fits the crime, but that's how the story was. I assume it's true to the, the context of the, the um, culture at that time. But he, he serves his 19-year sentence, and then towards the end of his sentence, we see him, and he's struggling in prison. He finally gets released on parole. And when he gets released on parole, he's given a piece of paper that is his new identity. And everywhere he goes from that point forward, he has to show his papers. And his papers say, convict. And so when Jean Valjean gets to a new town and he's looking for a place to stay, he goes up to the innkeeper. May I stay here for the night? Let me see your papers. Convict, get out of here. And then he goes to a new place and he's trying to find a job and he goes up to the proprietor and he says to him, may I, may I work for you? I'm a hard worker. And the man says, let me see your papers. And it says, convict. And he says, get out of here. And so he's struggling to, to find a new start after being released from prison. And so one night he stumbles upon this encounter with a French bishop of the, of the local church. And, and the bishop is kind to him. And the bishop treats him as, a, as an honored guest and invites him into his home and shows him his dignity. And he feeds him a, a warm meal and he gives him a warm bed to, to sleep in. And Jean Valjean is being treated not according to the way he's ever been treated. So he's struggling with this. And he's having a hard time thinking differently because as, as he's been treated as a criminal for so long, he's still thinking as a criminal and he's just not processing this kindness that this stranger is giving to him. So in the middle of the night, after this bishop has done such a kind thing, he does this. Take a look.
Is anybody there? So we'll use wooden spoons. I don't want to hear anything more about it. I'm sorry to disturb you. You caught him. But I had my eye on this man. Oh, and... thank God. I'm very angry with you, Jean Valjean. What happened to your eye, Monseigneur? Didn't he tell you he was our guest last night? Oh, yes. After we searched his knapsack and found all this silver, he claimed. <laughs> that you gave it to him. Yes. Of course I gave him the silverware. But why didn't you take the candlesticks? That was very foolish. Madame Gillot, fetch the silver candlesticks. They're worth at least 2,000 francs. Why did you leave them? Hurry. Monsieur Valjean has to get going. He's lost a lot of time. Did you forget to take them? Are you saying he told us the truth? Of course. Thank you for bringing him back. I'm very relieved. Release him. You're really letting me go? Didn't you understand the bishop? Madam Gillot, offer these men some wine. They must be thirsty. Thank you. forget. Don't ever forget. You've promised to become a new man. Promise? Why are you doing this? Jean Valjean, my brother, you no longer belong to evil. With this silver, I've bought your soul. I've ransomed you from fear and hatred. And now I give you back to God. So, the story goes on. This is at the beginning of the, the story. This is at the beginning of the film. And the story goes on from there. And he spends the rest of his life trying to live as a redeemed new man. As a good man. Not the criminal he became when he was in prison. And he, and he spends the rest of his life trying to show mercy to other people who are in dark situations. And I love this story. It's one of my favorites. I watched it with one of my kids recently. And uh, we, we just enjoyed it together so much. It, it's such a clear picture of how God treated this woman so many years ago. You know, the, the interesting thing about this woman is we don't know what the result of her life was because we don't see any kind of follow-up to her story, like where are they now, like a catch-up episode. We don't see that about the woman caught in the act of adultery. All we know is she had this encounter 
And I believe with all my heart that this totally changed the trajectory of her life. I believe she was a new person, a new person with a new outlook on life. I believe she was changed from the inside out because when you have an encounter with mercy to that degree, you can't help but be softened and changed by it. And you know, the the reality of the matter is this woman received mercy when what she deserved was judgment. And what we need to understand here today is that she wasn't alone in the middle of that circle. Now, in a, in a very literal sense, it was her and Jesus and a bunch of people watching. And so in a sense, she was alone as she was being accused and then uh, being shown mercy and that debt was being forgiven. But she wasn't alone there because all of us have our own junk, don't we? All of us have our own shame. How would you like it if your identity was reduced down to your deepest, darkest, most shameful secret, that your, your most shameful sin that you've ever committed, and that's how people knew you? Every one of us in this room can relate more to that woman than the religious leaders who acted like they had nothing going bad in their own lives. We all have our own junk. We all have our, 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 our areas where we've been, um, where we haven't lived up to what we should. Uh, we've, we've sinned, we've made mistakes, we've caused hurt to people we love. We've all been there. And here's what we need to understand today, is that just like Jesus showed mercy to this woman when she was at this dark, dark moment in her life, he extends mercy to all of us today as well. In fact, Paul writes this uh, many years later when he writes to the church in the city of Rome. He says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It means that God extends the same mercy to you because of what Jesus did uh, 2,000 years ago on the cross. He extends the same mercy to you so that you don't have that burden hanging over you, so that you don't have that guilt, that shame, and, and so that all of that can be relieved and that you can live as a redeemed person, a new person with a new outlook on life. Every one of us can do that. Every one of us can experience that mercy and, and, and start our lives new. That's what Jesus does. That's what he does for all of us. That's what he did for me when I was a boy. And um, ever since then, I've, I've made my mistakes. But every time I make my mistakes, every time I, I let my guard down and I do something that isn't living up to his standards, I'm really quick and able to say, God, I thank you for your mercy, and I thank you that you don't treat me according to what I deserve, but you treat me according to what Jesus exchanged for me, right? He took my guilt so that I could take his right standing with God. That's the reality of, of what Jesus did. This woman encountered, in, in a sliver of a moment, she encountered one of the most important things that we see about who God is, the mercy of God, where he doesn't treat us according to the bad that we deserve, but he treats us according to mercy. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you so much for the fact that, Lord, every one of us here, we have our own reasons to feel shame. We have our own reasons to feel condemned. We have our own reasons to feel uh, the, the weight of our, the burden that we have created through our own actions. But Father, we're thankful today that because of what Jesus did, that burden is lifted. That burden is relieved from us because Jesus took that burden upon himself and, and now 
There is no condemnation for those who put their faith and their trust in Jesus and what he did for them. Father, I thank you that this morning, um, as, as, as this message is wrapping up, I just thank you that these men and women and these teenagers and these children that are in this room, God, uh, that, that you have good in store for them and you want to show them how much you love them. But Lord, give them a real understanding of the mercy of God that is available to them in spite of their darkest sins. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.